Welcome, everyone, to episode 64, Blood Reprogramming. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you so much for the overwhelming response to episode 63. Seemed like you enjoyed it. I don't know. We hope that you did. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm doing great uh, here in New York on the East Coast at large. The weather's getting warmer. The days are getting longer, and today in mm -hmm. New York is the primary, so I have a big choice to make, and we're going to circle back around to that in the uh, rant section of the show. Awesome. So you haven't voted yet. No, I got a tough choice. You know, it's interesting. It's three New Yorkers. I, I'm doing air quotes here with the New Yorkers. We got the <laughs> carpetbagger, the Brooklyn native, the, the builder, and then Ted Cruz. So I don't know. It's going to be a real tough call. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe just... Shortest toothpick? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a toss-up. The world or the United States fate is in your hands. Yeah, it's going to be a tough choice, but I'm going to tell you a little bit later on what's going to be governing my choice, like I said, alluded to, in the rant section of the show, and it's really going to play a big part in my vote today. So yeah. stay tuned. Oh, that's my favorite part of the show, so I can't wait to get to it. Let's get down to business, everybody. Make sure you engage with us on all of our channels. The easiest way to do that is by going to stemcellchannels.com where you can easily access all of our stem cell tools like you can sign up for our newsletter. If you sign up for the newsletter, we will email you when a new show is released that will contain all the links to the papers we discussed as well as a detailed show summary makes your life a lot easier. You can also sign up for the Stem Cell Forum, and we have created the first forum for all things stem cells called Stem Cell Chat. Go sign up for free and join the conversation. Be a part of it. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right, Dalen. We have a great show ahead today, and our guest for this episode is Dr. Kateri Moore, and we will talk to her about her work and latest paper in Developmental Cell about reprogramming and blood stem cells. But right now, are you ready to round it up? I'm ready, Kiki. Let's get started. The Science Roundup is sponsored by Biotechni. Biotechni brings together the prestigious life science research brands of R&D Systems, Novus Biologicals, Tokris Bioscience, and Protein Simple to provide stem cell researchers with high-quality reagents that will optimize and standardize their workflow. Go to StemCellPodcast.com and click on the banner for more info. Let's get started, Kiki. Science Roundup. All right, so I've got our general science stories for today. Uh, the CDC has announced that there is no longer any doubt that Zika causes microcephaly. Doctors have been linking Zika infections in pregnant women to a rise in microcephaly in newborns. Microcephaly is an unusually small skull. Very often this is linked to genetic defects. This can also be linked to viruses and pathogens. Uh, most experts have been really cautious about drawing this connection because it's all correlation. There's no smoking gun evidence so far, but the evidence finally is in due to a review in the New England Journal of Medicine. Researchers used a process of analyzing the data that is available that is suggested for use in identifying teratogens or cancer-causing mutagenic 
pathogens and things in the environment. So they looked through molecular, epidemiological, clinical data, and all of this, including reports of babies that have been born with microcephaly. And all of the data together, the researchers were able to say fairly conclusively that even though there's not a single smoking gun, all of the evidence points in the direction of Zika, definitely causing severe birth defects, specifically microcephaly. So most people, you get just a mild, brief illness, not a big deal. But if you're traveling through these countries as a pregnant woman, you really should be much more cautious. Yeah, this is pretty scary stuff. And it seems like the U.S. now is maybe going to advise women who are planning to get pregnant not to travel or maybe even delay pregnancy. This is really scary stuff. And I'm glad to see that now there may be some consensus on the link and we can start moving forward on how to how to get through this and how to solve this problem. Yeah, I think definitely because it gives people advice. You know, now we can say there is the link. Let's you know, you should be careful. Right. Don't travel these places. Or, yeah, if you are going to travel, like you said, don't get pregnant. You know, and here in the United States, it has not shown up in the United States, even though the vector species of mosquitoes are present in the U.S. Zika has only been identified in people traveling through the U.S. So, so far, we're off the hook. So far, so good. See what happens this summer, Kiki. I don't know. I know. Our big hot summer coming up, right? <laughs> ah. yeah. Okay, next story up. This is a very exciting story. A For the first time, this is published in Nature in, on April 13th. For the first time, a paralyzed person has been able to bypass the point of injury and use a paralyzed limb. And this is using a brain-computer interface. So they put a recorder into the man's motor cortex. That went to a computer. The computer was then able to analyze the signals within the brain and say, hey, this guy wants to grab something and send the appropriate signals to muscles in the man's forearm to be able to get him to not only grab a cup, but also do a pinch grasp to be able to grab and swipe a credit card and also play a guitar video game. So not only is it useful, there's going to be like, all sorts of uses. <laughs> Entertainment. <Yeah. laughs> I got to say, the best part about this story for me was that the first thing this guy does after not using, the first thing they got him doing is playing Guitar Hero. I love it. I know. Although I have to say, looking at the picture, he had a little bit of a, a sadness on his face that I thought uh, derived from the fact that if it were me, at least, I, I would want to get into Super Mario. I mean, I got to be honest, Guitar Hero just doesn't do it for me. I could see it on his face. He wanted <laughs> Super Mario Brothers, maybe Metroid, something a little bit more fast paced. Right. Well, with practice, he'll probably get there. I mean, he's had the implant in his head for approximately two years now. And so it's taken about two years to get to the point that he rebuilt the muscles in his forearm and hand to be able to get to the point of making these very fine movements. And so with further practice and with further finesse in the software that they're using and the recording that they are doing, it's just going to get better and better. So far, this is just in the lab and it isn't ready for mainstream use. But this is the first time this has happened outside of a primate, our primate cousin species, and also uh, with within the same body. So not controlling a robot arm, but controlling mm. your own arm. So this is 
so exciting. Uh, there is a YouTube video that's available if people want to see this firsthand and what this feat actually entailed. And we'll post the link up on the website. Amazing. Yeah. Moving away from the brain and into the greater world, we all know bees are important for pollination of flowers, right? Of course. Of course. Well, flowers also contain protein for the bees to survive on. And if there's not enough protein content in the flowers, how well are those bees going to survive? So the question is, what's going on with the different species that these bees our pollinator species rely on for their survival. Researchers publishing in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B this last month found that the protein content in Solidago canadensis, a widespread goldenrod species, declined by about a third over the last 170 or so years. And they've correlated this with a rise in carbon dioxide concentrations. And now you might say, well, correlation does not imply causation. That's exactly what I was going to say, Kiki. <laughs> well, they also prove it. Prove it. They did experiments and they took these same flowers and grew them over the course of two years in different diminishing carbon dioxide concentrations. And they found the same thing in their experimental setup as they found in preserved specimens that they'd looked at from historical evidence. So experimental evidence showed increasing carbon dioxide concentrations, diminished protein content. This corroborated the correlational evidence. And so now we need to maybe be thinking about how this is affecting bees' survival. Is it affecting their ability to withstand colony collapse disorder? Is it part of that? Yeah, this colony collapse thing is really scary. And I think people have been talking about it all in terms of pesticides and nicotinamides and all this stuff. And this is a new angle. Maybe their food is just the quality of their food, probably secondary to some other anthropomorphic influence. Right. Maybe the issue, and it's a big issue, bees contribute $29 billion to the U.S. economy, essential for fertilizing 30% of agribusiness-based plants and 90% of wild plant species. You need bees for uh, the pollinization. So this is a really big deal. We need to figure this out. Absolutely. Let's help them maintain their immune systems. But aside from bees maintaining their immunity, there's a study in Nature Biotechnology from April 11th that found that some people somehow escape or are resistant to genetic disease. So there are diseases that are called Mendelian diseases in which a single mutation can cause disease and it's heritable. So basically you have this either dominant or recessive mutation that gets passed on from uh, generation to generation and causes disease. And it basically, we look, it's Mendelian, right? So you're like, hey, it just works this way. You have it, you're going to get this disease. But they discovered that there were 13 individuals out of almost 600,000 people. So this isn't common at all. But 13 people had Mendelian disease genotypes but did not have the phenotypes. So they didn't actually have any markers for the disease as adults, and they should have. So the question now is, are there other genes within their genomes that are somehow protecting them, that are somehow maintaining a healthy phenotype? 
And if so, what are they? Or is it some kind of environmental effect that their lives have somehow occurred differently? Or is it epigenetic? So there are all sorts of questions that need to be answered at this point as to, okay, how is it possible for them to escape what they should not be able to escape? And then what does that mean for being able to treat people who are not resistant to their genetic diseases? Yeah, I wonder. That's a great insight there. Maybe they could get, get the same escape mechanisms for people who are affected by the disease. I saw one of them was cystic fibrosis. Very right. high profile disease affects many, many, many people. And to find someone who has the defective genes but doesn't manifest disease, that's really remarkable. And I have no idea how that could possibly work. It's a real interesting story. Oh, it's so fascinating. And the question now, researchers want to keep moving on it, but they're going to have to, you know, find more large scale genetic uh, studies in which genomes are being analyzed that they can look for these diseases. And so they're hoping that they can kind of get this into the larger field of view so people volunteer mm. their genomes more easily for analysis. And then my final story, uh, this one, <laughs> I look at it and I go, well, you know, Duh. <laughs> is researcher Jeffrey Kuznikov studies communications at Miami University, Middletown in Ohio. I think they also call this, I think his official name is Captain Obvious. Captain Obvious. He asked his studies to be in his class during lecture, and they were allowed to either tweet or text about whatever they wanted, to tweet or text about the lecture material only, or not have any access to their smartphones at all. And he found that, lo and behold, the students that were texting on things unrelated to the class didn't do that well. <laughs> Control and class-related message groups did 70% better on the test than did students that could text and tweet about anything. And uh, control and relevant message groups also scored 50% higher on note-taking. And the researcher says, try to avoid splitting your attention between what's going on in class and whatever you might need to do with your mobile device. There's a danger to spreading yourself too thin, he says. And I think, I don't know, I, I know this. You have to pay attention. If you're doing something else, you're not paying attention. You're not going to get that information. We have the attentional portion of our brain is limited as to its scope. Now, with this, we know 73% of teens own or have a smartphone, according to a Pew Research Center survey. 73. So maybe there should be some kind of limitation on when kids, especially high school kids, can use their phones in classes. Yeah, that's for sure. I'll be honest. I'm not really at all surprised. You would have had to quote a much higher number for me to be even blink. Uh, maybe like 99% of teens I would have been surprised <laughs> at, but and that would be like global. Yeah, the ones that have them, I guess some 90% of teens with these phones send text messages. <laughs> Another shocker. Right. Another <laughs> shocker. Well, I'll tell you, you know, maybe this is one of those in the heading of stuff we all know, but nobody's really proven yet. So right. I guess now we can say definitively that texting during class is not good for your grades. Not a great idea if you want to get good grades. All right. So that's it for my side of the roundup. What do you have for stem cell news? I've got a few, Kiki. I've got a few. I'm going to start uh, maybe as a, a continuation of last week's episode with Joe Zhao. That was really great. We're going to talk about diabetes. 
This is a little bit from the maybe the bazaar or the, I don't know, the scientific equivalent of jumping the shark or ironic science. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but scientists have now reprogrammed fat stem cells to make them produce insulin. You know, insulin is the important protein chemical for controlling your blood sugar. And the idea is that you can use people's own fat to treat them for diabetes. Okay, so what the researchers did is they extracted fat stem cells from a 50-year-old from his fatty tissue, and they genetically reprogrammed them to make them into these mature beta cells, the cells that make insulin. And in the presence of glucose, these cells were responsive. They made insulin just like the natural cells you would find in the pancreas. This was a study published in Nature Communications. And the idea, again, is that we could treat people with this chronic condition. Now, I don't want to minimize diabetes. A lot of times this is an autoimmune disease, type 1 diabetes, where it has nothing to do with lifestyle or being overweight or have a poor diet. But still, to me, it seems really Kafka-esque that now we're going to use the manifestations or the, the cause of the disease to <laughs> exactly. treat the disease. I mean, I'm going to kind of just get ahead of the curve here and propose. That's keep, what I was thinking. I'm yeah. going to make a treatment. All right. I'm marking it here. Put the IP on it. I'm going to treat heart disease with a steady diet of cheeseburgers and cocaine. Oh, perfect. We're going to make that work. We're going to turn the cause into the cure, and it won't be long before we are all living disease-free with all our vices intact. Either that or we're all living in a Woody Allen film. <laughs> yeah, something like that. All right, so moving on, this is something more orthopedic. This is a 3D printing biopen. So, you know, 3D printing is all the rage. It's probably going to drive a whole new shift in the economy. I don't really understand that, but people tell me it's so, and I believe them because they're smart. This is equivalent, but trying to apply it to uh, science and, and surgery, really specifically. You know, I'm getting old. I don't know about you, Kiki. You look like you were born yesterday. But I, my knees, I'm having trouble with my knees and my joints, and I'm not alone. Hundreds of thousands of knee surgeries are performed every year, often to replace cartilage because it doesn't grow back. It goes away and that's just bone on bone. You're grinding. But the techniques for performing these surgeries may be about to change thanks to this new research. In the not too distant future, orthopedic surgeons may be drawing in cartilage using stem cell extruding devices called biopens. Of course, this is all uh, still in the research and development stage, not even close to being approved for a medical application, but it's kind of extrapolating the 3D printing technology into this biologic context and using this pen to specifically shoot in little pockets or bolus of stem cells directly into the site of injury. This was published just last month in the journal Biofabrication. Scientists from the Australian Research Council Center of Excellence for Electromaterial Science which somehow becomes an acronym ACES. They detailed experiments using this custom-built 3D printing pen. And the idea is that you could combine it with existing technologies where you create a pad of cartilage using this neocart-type technology. Mm -hmm. And then you can kind of fill in and tailor-make it to fit in perfectly into the site of injury and serve as a good buffer for these patients who don't have uh, any cartilage left in their knees. So, Kiki, I don't know. 
You tell me what you think. Have you ever used the 3D printing pens? Have you ever tried using one of them? I didn't even know they had 3D printing pens. They extrude a plastic and you can use them to draw three-dimensional structures. And when you watch the videos of this happening online, it's amazing the things that people can draw. But when you actually put it into practice... It's really hard to actually make these things do anything. So the amount of practice that it takes to become proficient with these is going to be, you know, it's going to take a lot of training for any surgeon who starts using this technology to be able to use it proficiently. And then secondarily, I think it's just so amazing that cells, now we have this 3D printing, we've got these pens, like the cells can be pushed out through these things and they survive and they're they're fine. That is awesome. Well, it is awesome (laughs) if it's true. I think it's certainly something in its infancy. We got a lot to work on it, but I, I don't know about doctors may not be the best first line to put this into play. Have you ever seen a doctor's handwriting? It's <laughs> terrible. I mean, granted, they're well, good with the scalpel, but with a pen, uh, um, not so much, maybe. Yeah, maybe it's because they've got their f- attention focused elsewhere when they're signing things. That's just an excuse. Quit bailing them out. <laughs> All right, moving on. Retinal organoids. You've been thinking about retinal organoids lately? Um, nope. <laughs> well, you should be. They're okay. important, and I'll tell you why. Well, first, let me just give you the basis here. One of the big disconnects that we have in in science is that, or at least cell biology, is a lot of the things we're doing, it's in a dish, right? And especially in stem cell and embryonic stem cell and regenerative medicine, we're trying to recapitulate a process that doesn't happen in a two-dimensional flat layer of cells. We're we're trying to look at things that happen in three dimensions. And a lot of things, a lot of cells don't work until they're put in a three-dimensional context. And You know, in the past few years, researchers have made tremendous strides in trying to overlay this three-dimensional aspect to stem cell differentiation and making these organoids, which are like mini organs. They're not necessarily anatomically correct and faithful to what you see in vivo, but they look sort of like the organs. They've done this with brains. They've done this with eyes in particular in a remarkable fashion, making these stratified retinal organoids that are actually approach the architecture and anatomy of the eye, which is something I think that a decade ago, people wouldn't have been even thinking of making a whole organ in vitro. And besides the obvious extension of making something and then putting it in the body, this is really informative for understanding the processes and and how these things come about and also optimizing the differentiation of really important cell types like rods and cones. So, What this group did, it was a paper in Stem Cell Reports, which you can find the link on the website, but they effectively refined an existing process that was created in the last few years and showed that they could make a really efficient protocol for making these organoids and that these organoids, they looked like the tissue that are actually, this is using mouse cells, they look just like the cells that are in an actual mouse retina. And they also figured out a chemical cocktail that really increased or maximized the efficiency of making the rods and cones, the photoreceptors that are essential to eye function. So with using all these tools, I think we're kind of zeroing in on, I guess, a a tool for understanding the development of the eye and the cells in the eye. But also, I think we're moving towards actually making organs in vitro and then applying them in therapeutic 
type context. So really exciting stuff there. Yeah, this is the kind of stuff that people are going to be very excited about when it comes to therapy, especially for diseases like macular degeneration and others where we really have no cure at this point. Yes, I think the eye, you know, a lot of people think the eye may be the first line where the first therapies start shaking out of stem cell research. And, you know, these types of stories kind of lend credence to that idea. Yeah. All right. So now we're going to go a little bit into the arcane. You know, I got to set this up a little bit with the brief history, trying to be as minimal as possible. The, the idea of this story is naive, pluripotent stem cells that are derived directly from isolated cells of the inner cell mass of a human blastocyst. That sounds like a lot of just gibberish to a lot of people, I'm sure. And I'm going to try and explain it in the best way I know. So for many years, stem cells that were derived, embryonic stem cells that were derived from mouse and human looked very different. And it's weird because usually the things are the fundamental elements of mouse and human development are relatively similar. But in this case, they weren't. And it was a real puzzle. And it took a while before we realized that the stem cells that we've been looking at in the human are actually very different from the stem cells that were originally derived in the mouse. And that these stem cells are at a later, more, I guess, mature, progressed stage of differentiation during embryonic development. And this is important because the, the more naive state, the ones that the mouse look like, are perhaps more potent. They can become more cell types with greater efficiency which is important for the ultimate therapeutic application of these cells. So in the past few years, people have figured out how to kind of reset the human stem cells back into that naive mouse-like form, but they've never actually shown that you could start them out that way. They always isolate them originally from the human embryo, blastocyst stage, and then they reset them back once they've been established in vitro. This was the first of its kind study to show that if you isolate the stem cells in the right conditions, they are originally established in that naive state, and they stay in that naive state. So kind of a, a minor footnote, but nevertheless, an important milestone. Does that make any sense, Kiki? <laughs> it does make sense. So basically, you have to catch them during the right phase of their development and to be able to kind yes. of keep them in that phase of development, to use them in the way that, yes. that you want to use them. Yes. And I think this is an idea that we may circle around to with Dr. Moore as she comes on the show. You know, these cells, they exist not just as a type of cell, but they exist in this kind of temporal element, too. If you get them too early or too late, they don't have the same degree of potency as they, you know, that Goldilocks zone. So blood is a really good example of that. And maybe we can ask right. Dr. Moore about that when she comes on the show. Yeah. And I guess additionally with this, if you can catch them at the right stage, you don't have to apply chemical factors or genetic factors that could influence them in some as yet undetermined way. Exactly. Best to keep them at the ground state right off the bat. All right. You have one more? Yeah, I got one more. And this one, we're circling back, back to zero here. You started with Zika. I'm going to end with Zika. This was a uh, basic study. And this, I think, is a testament to how scientific efforts around the world are mobilizing to address this threat in as rapid a fashion as possible. A lot of the stories that are being published about Zika, the basic scientific stories, which normally would be in review for, you know, months to even years, they have been fast-tracked and with maintaining a high standard of scrutiny and review from referees, pushed these papers out so that all scientists around the world can benefit from the insights offered. And this is one of those. 
And it's particularly notable because Dr. Arnold Kriegstein is going to be on the show next time, and he can elaborate on this, but I'm just going to give a very brief overview of the work. The idea here is that we got to understand how Zika works. Okay, so a few weeks before this one, a story came out in the same journal, Cell Stem Cell, showing that Zika can affect neural stem cells that are isolated from human embryonic stem cells, showing that their target cell type is neural. This story was a bit different. It was trying to understand how the Zika virus gets into these neural stem cells. So viruses, generally speaking, some viruses are specific for a specific species. And the reason why one virus may affect one species and not another is because they exploit receptors that are normally expressed on different cells And those receptors become the entry point for the virus. And some species have a receptor that's amenable to viral entry, whereas another species may not. Okay, so the question is, what is the entry point in human cells that allows the Zika virus to get in there? And the way that Dr. Kriegstein and his group went about this is they looked at a single cell analysis to try and identify a cohort or a broad array of candidate viral entry receptors that Zika might use. And what they found was that one viral entry candidate, in particular Axel or AXL, is strongly expressed in human radial glia, brain capillaries, and microglia. And it's also expressed in developing human retinal progenitors. And this high degree of expression of Axel is conserved in rodents, and in human cerebral organoid model systems, and the organoid model systems including those derived from human embryonic stem cells. So this is a great candidate because it's expressed in all the cell types that are affected, not only in the general brain that are targeted by Zika virus, but it's also expressed during development, which is really key because we know that this disease manifests and the Zika virus's effect manifests during prenatal development. And more than that, I think it shows that this high expression holds up in this organoid model system that we have, the human embryonic stem cell-based system. So it's a great platform to try and look at ways that we can inhibit this process of viral entry, that we can kind of block that activity of the Zika virus, identifying that receptor and getting in the cells and ultimately try and mitigate the effects of Zika, even ongoing pregnancy by means of a drug or some other kind of biologic treatment, perhaps. So we're going to hear more about this on the next episode. But I think this is really exciting because as the hysteria grows around Zika, it's really comforting to know that there's a really strong response that's been mobilized. Very important research. And it's, uh, I, I think the big question that I have, though, is, you know, whether they're looking at a receptor target, you know, to uh, develop a vaccine for uh, mm. pregnant individuals who have Zika. You know, we have to start looking at if you do develop something that blocks the receptor or somehow blocks Zika from attaching to the receptor, how is that also going to influence fetal development? Yeah. And that's something that we don't know yet. So it's like, okay, this is step one, but then... What are the downstream effects going to be and how can you really mitigate those? Yeah, that's a really great point, Kiki. We got to make sure that in all this hysteria, we don't really rush to action. Make sure that we come out with a treatment that's safe. You know, we don't want to do something worse potentially than Zika itself. So that's a really that's a really great point. But it is very exciting. Yeah, it is. It is exciting. We're getting there. I think we're getting there. So, Kiki, that's it for my end of the roundup. I think now it's time to press on to uh, the esteemed Dr. Katri Moore. 
Awesome. Okay, this has been a great roundup. Remember that all of the links to these papers will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, they can be emailed directly to you by signing up for the newsletter. Okay, let's get into the interview segment of the show. The interview portion of the show is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies wants us to let you know all about a new cell culture medium they have that reverts primed pluripotent stem cells and maintains them in a naive state. The new medium is called RSET, pronounced RESET. Should be easy for everyone to remember because it's teaser, spelled backwards. The new and improved formulation is based on a 2013 Nature publication out of the HANA lab. And just for being a podcast listener, Stem Cell Technologies will give you a free sample. Just go to stemcell.com slash get reset. All right. Our guest today is Dr. Kateri Moore, also known as Terry. Dr. Moore is currently an associate professor of developmental and regenerative biology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. The Moore lab studies both the basic biology and molecular mechanisms that make a hematopoietic stem cell, a self-renewing stem cell that sustains our blood system throughout life. They use model systems to investigate these properties and also to convert other cell types into hematopoietic stem cells for eventual therapeutic uses. So Dr. Moore's group just recently published a paper in Developmental Cell, and we discussed this last episode, but we're going to get into a lot more detail today. Dr. Moore, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, it is fantastic to have you with us, and so we're just really thrilled to get the chance to talk with you about your work. But before we really dig into it, can you tell us in the audience about the focus of your lab's work? Well, right now, the lab is kind of divided in two areas. Uh, one of them involves uh, studying the basic biology of hematopoietic stem cells. And the other is this effort that we're making to try to reprogram somatic cells into hematopoietic stem cells using transcription factors. So those are the major emphases. Both are moving along quite well. We just published the paper in Developmental Cell. We're working to put together a manuscript about our efforts with human reprogramming, reprogramming human fibroblasts into hematopoietic cells. And uh, my graduate student has a paper uh, that's under revision in a major journal right now that we're very, very excited about. It's about aging hematopoietic stem cells and their particular properties and how they uh, self-renew throughout life. Oh, that's interesting. So can you tell us a little bit about, say, the, the life cycle of these hematopoietic cells? So what's the difference between the hematopoietic stem cell and then the progenitor cell? Okay. I think this is really kind of a, an area that used to be kind of set in stone, that everybody thought that the hematopoietic stem cell was a self-renewing cell that was constantly providing all the progenitors all the time throughout life. And more recent studies have identified a somewhat new type of stem cell called a dormant hematopoietic stem cell, one that self-renews very rarely throughout life. And in fact, it just divides very few times. I'll get down to the specifics about that in a little bit. But what these studies have shown is that it's really the downstream progenitors, the multipotent progenitors that are probably running our hematopoiesis on a daily basis. They're the ones that are contributing 
specifically to the ongoing needs on a day-to-day basis. While the other stem cell, the dormant stem cell, only comes into play when there's something bad that happens. You know, so some kind of stress or something. So, so a, a stress response, really. It's more kept in reserve as a stress response type thing. If you right. lose a lot of blood, have chemotherapy, uh, severe infection, you know, if something really bad happens, these cells will come out of dormancy, replenish the hematopoietic system, and then go back to dormancy. Terry, this kind of reminds me a little bit about of um, female reproduction, a little bit, in that it seems, and I, I want to know, is this also the case? It's thought in the female that all the germ cells are set aside very early, and then there's a reserve that's slowly depleted over the course of, of that female's life until she reaches an age where she's, quote-unquote, infertile. Is a similar idea with hematopoietic stem cells that they're all allocated really early and just lying there in wait for these stress scenarios? Or do they actually multiply and self-renew? They will self-renew when they're called into a stress situation. But in normal life, there are a finite number of self-renewal divisions they can undergo. And that is kind of the crux of the paper that we have in revision right now, that we have found that a one of these dormant stem cells can only self-renew four times. When it undergoes a fifth self-renewal or a fifth cell division, it goes on down the differentiation pathway, that it's essentially slated for extinction at that point. It's lost from the reserve pool. And what we've also been able to show is that in addition to being able to only divide four times, they every self-renewal division that they make is a symmetrical self-renewal division, that they make a copy of each other each time, and they don't differentiate during those types of divisions. Mm. So there are specific molecular signals that are saying, okay, this is just a copy and divide versus it's time for you to turn in, go on to the next stage and turn into something else. Yes. And right now we're trying to investigate and figure out exactly what those signals are, of course. Right. And if we actually knew what those signals are, is there the potential that we could maintain the stem cells and their division longer? Or do you think that's just going to be finite forever? Well, I think you definitely would have the possibility to alter the stem cell fate if you actually knew the key players that were um, mediating that, you know, whether it's an epigenetic change or whether it's a, a cell autonomous change. Right now, we think most of the instructions are probably coming cell autonomously, except maybe within the context of aging, when you also have an aging microenvironment that aids and abet problems associated with aging. This is a really, I think, pivotal idea, especially because you put a number on it. Mm -hmm. So is the idea then that, or would you suggest that someone who has a lot of stress scenarios of whatever form in early childhood is going to be really prone towards some kind of malignancy. And is there evidence to support that? I really wouldn't know, but that would be a very interesting area to look into. There's probably records out there of people or children that have suffered great childhood trauma. And I don't know, that would be an interesting clinical uh, study, actually. 
Yeah, I guess there's a kind of a, a different idea of whether it's like a genetic karyotypic abnormality leads to cancer or if it's just a depletion in a kind of like a anemic type phenotype. Is, is those two different things or are they related at all? Do well, you know? if you think about the fact that, you know, that stem cells can self-renewal new under stress and go back to dormancy, then if you repeatedly do that over and over, just think of how many more times you're exposing that stem cell to a self-renewal division that it wasn't normally supposed to do. So you're taking it outside of the realm of homeostasis and putting it into a constant stress environment. So it's being forced to undergo many more divisions than it normally would. And cell division is the most perilous time in a cell's lifespan. So bad things happen when the DNA has to replicate and find its partner. So maybe then, is this possibly the body's safeguard? Like in order to make it so that these stem cells don't self-renew too much to the point where they get these kind of abnormalities, maybe they're kind of they have not a suicide switch, but they have an internal clock, an autonomous clock that doesn't or restricts their ability to self-renew too many times. They go downhill and differentiate before they can become a liability. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. Fascinating. It's an interesting evolutionary explanation as well. Yeah. And so what kind of challenges have you had in getting these hematopoietic stem cells and maintaining them in lab in the culture dish? Well, they're virtually almost impossible to, they can be maintained. In fact, some of my very early work with stromal cell lines and so forth, I did find a stromal cell line that would maintain both mouse and human hematopoietic stem cells and maintain their stem cell state. They would never expand under those conditions, but they could be maintained for extended periods of time. The goal, however, is is to figure out ways to truly expand a self-renewing, repopulating stem cell, one that you can take and use as a transplantable product to help a patient. Well, that's a nice segue into your recent paper, I think. I mean, part of the innovation there was that you used your previous system, which was a direct reprogramming approach, uh-huh. and you kind of used it as a platform to, to identify a cell right at the point of transition from hemogenic endothelium to hematopoietic stem or progenitor and beyond, is that going to be the key to getting a potent self-renewing stem cell? Is the timing of the isolation? And maybe you could use this as an opportunity to elaborate your study. Well, that study, which we did just publish in Developmental Cell, was about looking at our reprogramming data and realizing that in the middle of, you know, during the process that we were observing in the dish, it appeared to recapitulate what we call developmental hematopoiesis. And that means, that process means whereby cells, you know, obviously when you're a zygote, you start differentiating into the three germ layers. And then there's this one particular layer called the mesoderm, which contains all of the hematopoietic compartment. But the mesoderm eventually differentiates into some specific type of endothelial cell. But never before have we really identified a phenotype of a cell that is a precursor to a hemogenic endothelial cell. So we're a step back from the hemogenic endothelial cell. What we saw 
in our reprogramming studies was that there was this particular cell type that came up. And if we isolated that for its cell surface phenotype, just a couple of markers that we could put those specific cells down in culture. And that's where the hematopoietic cells came from. So we elected to go look within the placenta where stem cells are arising during development. They're uh, coming out of the placenta at certain stages. We also looked at the AGM in collaboration with other people who are much better at finding the AGM than we are. We're not experts in that area. So we, we went for the placenta because I knew I could find that. So we looked at that cell population and looked for that phenotype and actually found it. And we isolated them, put them in culture, and we were able to coax them through, you know, the various stages where they would turn into endothelial-like cells, and then they would undergo what we call EHT, which is endothelial to hematopoietic transition, and then they would become hematopoietic cells. And these hematopoietic cells could be taken and transplanted eventually into to mice. After a certain period of transplantation, then we could go into the bone marrow of those mice, isolate a stem cell phenotype, and transplant them again, and find that, yes, that we have started or we've raised up a self-renewing stem cell. So we've gone all the way from a recursor cell to a self-renewing stem cell, basically doing this process within a dish, not claiming to have expanded cells or anything. But, you know, we have an awful lot of molecular data that we acquired during those studies that we're picking apart to try to look for molecular cues as to, you know, maybe within that body set of data, there will be some gleam of data or some magic molecule that we could work with to actually keep them at a precursor stage. You know, if we could grow up a whole bunch of precursor cells Mm. and then we could like save them. And then when we need them, we can just say, okay, you can start differentiating now. You know, we can, you can start becoming a stem cell so we can transplant you. And so is that what you're focused on right now? Are you doing assays and uh, basically a, a thorough search to identify these these molecular components? Yeah, we're digging through the, the molecular data, and we're also trying to combine that with uh, other basic mechanism data that we're deriving from the reprogramming studies. So we're trying to determine the mechanisms of the reprogramming at the level of chromatin and DNA. So by looking at DNA methylation, epigenetic marks, uh, chromatin immunoprecipitation with the antibodies to the transcription factors to see where they bind, to see what they recruit, see what they turn on and off and so forth. So it's we're getting a lot of genomics data. Terry, <laughs> that's quite a laundry list you have. Yeah. <laughs> um, can we go... Let's just- one Zoom. grad student working on this. Well, that's your, that's what grad students are for, right? Burn them out until they're just a husk. Poor thing. Oh, that grad student's going to have so many papers when it's all done. Can we talk about uh, hematological stress? We got to worry about the, the asymmetry of those uh, self-renewal down there. Just to zoom out a little bit, though, um, you know, a lot of people think hematopoiesis, and if they don't really... They don't have an interest in hematological disease, genetic or, you know, cancer, leukemia type thing. The idea of replacing 
the blood system. They maybe not lose interest, but it's not really their focus. I think one of the really exciting things about this therapy is that it's now the ideas are applying it for cancer specifically, but in a way that's not, you know, replacement. It's more targeting these T-cell, CAR-T-based therapies. Could you uh, maybe elaborate for our listeners a little bit on, on the potential for that and how your work might feed into that? Well, if you want to think about cancer therapies, like if you, in particular, if you uh, go with the hematological malignancies where there are specific mutations, the mutations occur in the hematopoietic cells themselves. So if you're starting with a fibroblast or some other type of somatic cell from the patient that has this particular leukemia, you could actually take the fibroblast and develop a blood system that would not have the mutation because it's, mm. it didn't go you know, through all the uh, different things that caused the mutation to occur in the hematopoietic cell to begin with. There are other areas you could think about looking into, uh, like sickle cell disease, Fanconi anemia. You could think about for like uh, inherited mutations. You could think about, you know, fixing that mutation in the fibroblast and then differentiating it to a hematopoietic cell and then using the patient's own new hematopoietic cells that are corrected to cure their own disease. So that's kind of where we see our applications, you know, coming in to the mm. picture for those types of diseases. It's possible, you know, I don't know, there may, any application that would require a bone marrow transplant would, could potentially feed into this type of technology. In addition, if we could start making individualized blood products, such like we could make lots of platelets or lots of uh, macrophages, T cells, B cells, whatever, red cells, that's necessary for a particular patient's disease. That's another possibility that would be an offshoot from this type of technology. You could also use the process for drug screening, you know, mm -hmm. to see how you alter cellular fates and so forth with uh, different drugs or halt the progression of some type of malignancy. So I think there's many applications. I think it's an easily, that, that's not a far reach to think about therapies or where it could fit in curing cancer and disease. Based, based on, on that, that, and based, based on the... On the History of hematopoietic transplant being well-established as a cell therapy, do you think that maybe hematopoietic stem cells from pluripotent stem cells is going to be one of the first things to be translated from the bench to the bedside? Well, we've actually had pluripotent stem cells for, what, uh, 20 years? Yeah. ES cells, IPS cells, we've had since 2003. Was that 2003 when Yamanaka did his seminal studies? Or was it six or seven? I'm I think it was six. Six, 2006. So Ten years. We've had that for ten years now. And these pluripotent stem cells, we still haven't gotten there yet. I don't know what the what's happening there. It seems like they get to a certain point in development, but they stay as the immature red cell, um, immature hematopoietic cells. They're not, they're primitive hematopoietic cells. They're not definitive hematopoietic cells. So there's still a block that in that from the pluripotent stem cells. And I know many people that have devoted their entire research careers to try and develop these technologies. I'm not going to name any names, but, you know, there's people who have been working on this for 30 years. So I'm hoping 
that um, this newer technology doesn't take that long. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's interesting and fun. (laughs) (laughs) At least you're having fun as you do all this work. I'm really, I'm having the most fun of my career I've ever had right now. And I just love my students and I love my people a lot. (laughs) They're such good, good guys and gals. That's wonderful. And I'm sure everybody is just, you know, this is such an interesting question to be working on this aspect of human biology and, you know, how we can put it past just being in the lab and potentially get it to therapeutic use in the future. I mean, to be part of that is, it's a little inspiring too. They're all psyched, you know, they've all had their little gotcha moments and, you know, that's what it takes in science. You know, it's those gotcha. I was just like, oh my God, look at what happened here. <laughs> Do you have a gotcha moment, like for you specifically, that you look back on in your career? Oh, well, I started out when I, when I was a postdoc, I was doing gene therapy work. You know, we thought we were going to cure the, every genetic disease, everything within five or 10 years max, you know. So I was doing retroviral vector mediated gene transfer. And I suppose the first time I saw that I actually got a gene to transfer that turned on a particular protein where my antibody worked and I could prove that my gene therapy in my mouse had worked was my gotcha moment. And it was like, oh, my God, it turned brown. (laughs) My cells turned brown. (laughs) They're making human ADA. (laughs) Yeah. It's just the small victories, I guess. Any success in science is a victory with as much failure. I mean, I have to tell you, I I took a crack at the so-called definitive hematopoietic stem cell and met with nothing but demoralizing failure over the course of hundreds (laughs) of mice. I drafted people to help me out with it. You moved to the primordial germ cell? Are you in the (laughs) Exactly. I thought, you know what? No one's going to be able to crack hematopoietic stem cells. Let me just go right to making embryos from stem cells. (laughs) But I have to say, it's a testament to the, the rigor, the resolve, and the leadership. I would say you should give yourself a lot more credit, Terry. Your gotcha moments are coming fast and furious it seems like i said i'm having fun so that's that's what's more important to me if i didn't feel that way i'm not sure i'd be doing this right now as hard as it is to be a pi and run a lab and get grants and oh you know i'm sure this is something you've probably heard before but it's rough out there (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's definitely a dog eat dog kind of situation once you get once you get into the pi You've got the PI position. Let's keep moving and keep doing the amazing research that you're doing. And I can't wait to hear about the paper you have coming out with your grad student. Is it in preparation or? <laughs> it's in revision. It's in revision. Okay. In revision. So we'll see. We'll Still see. some ways off. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got till the end of May. He wants to go to this meeting somewhere. So it says you, we've got to have it back before the end of May. So Watch out for those meetings, Terry. That's where all the... The rough stuff happens. I guess he deserves it. Meetings are for fun. Yeah, that's the truth. Mm-hmm. And to network. And to, that networking is fun. Come on. Of course it is. <laughs> Those aren't mutually exclusive. No, they're not. <laughs> yes, they are. Let's be honest. <laughs> All right. Well, Terry, thank you so much for talking with us today. I, this has just been fabulous to learn more about your work and kind of get the personal perspective on the work that you have been doing. I really appreciate your time. Okay. Well, it was great to talk to you guys too. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Terry. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Okay. You too. Don't forget to vote, Terry. 
Oh, well, I, I vote in New Jersey. Oh, no. <laughs> well, are you voting for Christy or is his time over? Oh, heavens. I would have never voted for him. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to get out there. Any recommendations? Who should I vote for? I'm, I'm taking advice. Uh, you have to vote for Hillary. I'm sorry. She's the okay. only person qualified to lead this country amongst all these people. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll take that in mind. I think I think you're probably right. But I've got a vested interest that I'm going to get to in a later portion of the show. I'm going to share with the listeners. I've got a vested interest in in this election, this primary cycle. So we'll have to see. I have to do a little more investigation. It's a selfish interest, but it's real. You can hear about it when you listen to the podcast. The whole podcast. Right. (laughs) The whole thing. I'm beginning to think we might have to turn this episode in, into uh, the Stem Cell and Politics podcast. Well, it's that time of year. That- I know. All right. We won't keep you any longer. Thank you once again. All right. Bye-bye, Thanks guys. Thanks again. Take care. Bye. Great speaking with you. All right. Kiki, what a great interview. I love Terry. She's so personable, and she's really a great person. I wish I had come up in her lab. Oh, I know. Any thoughts, Kiki? Yeah, I mean, she's so enthusiastic about the the work that she's doing to find, you know, to hear somebody say that they're having fun studying blood. This is, you know, it's it's neat to hear that said. But, you know, the work itself, I think the therapeutic possibilities down the road are, there are multitudes. And, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Like she said, she has a laundry list of items that is massive before we move forward on this, but it's good that someone's got that list. Yeah. And she's right on the cusp of realizing a lot of those goals. So, and you saw it brushes across the, the a very broad scope of uh, disease of all types. So it's really important work and couldn't be done by a better person. So I'm really glad we had her on, got to hear her thoughts. All right. Well, are you, are you ready to close the show? I'm ready. All right. It is time for us to have our SCP rant. And it's our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. So, all right, Dalen, what are we ranting about today? All right. So, I mean, it's not a soft rant. I'm not going to say that. But <laughs> a little bit as time has passed since this was especially relevant. But we... We had to address a request from a listener who asked, why don't we ever rant about daylight saving time? I'll be honest. It's hard to get angry about daylight saving time, but, you know, <laughs> don't. I, I like it. I like a little extra few extra hours in the day. It's nice. It's kind of a sign of spring and the weather warming up. But the more I think about it, Kiki, I'm building up a head of steam and I'm building up a rant that I think is going to be substantive. But the question is, why don't we just leave it on daylight savings time and not fall back in the fall? Well, there's. why don't we just move it forward an hour at a time? Hey, (laughs) I don't know. Moving into the future. It's a tough question. To be honest, I've looked into it. Daylight saving, (laughs) there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of debate. It doesn't really make sense to me. And that's kind of a bit of the reason I'm pissed off. First of all, it's pretty arbitrary. A lot of countries just don't do it. It makes sense. If you're close to the equator, I get it. You don't have the swings. It's pretty much six to six all year round. But even in the U.S., they just move it around. It it was a few years ago. I remember someone told me, oh, you know, they're moving up daylight savings a whole month. And I'm like, what? 
they can do that? I mean, God forbid, if my kids found out you could just move stuff around the calendar, we'd have all the high holidays in the first quarter of the year. Not to mention, I mean, while I'm talking about my kids, my big pet peeve about daylight savings is that during the winter hours, one of the, you know, silver linings, the benefit, at least with the toddler, is that as soon as it gets dark, you can pretty much con the kid into thinking it's nighttime and it's bedtime. So, I mean, my and my wife and I, we've even rolled the dice and put our kids to bed at 5 p.m. No kidding. Risking the late nap. But, uh, you know, now that the daylight savings very abruptly, it shoots forward and it's like bright until late hours of the night. My kids doing bed karate deep into the night. I'm frustrated. Maya's frustrated. We want to kill ourselves. So I'm a little bit upset about daylight savings. There's some upsides, but there's some downsides too. There definitely are. I mean, especially if you've got a small child and springtime when the daylight savings time shift comes around, all of a sudden your child is waking up when and how are they going to be getting to school on time? And it doesn't just hurt you. It hurts everybody. The kids want to stay up later. They want to get up earlier. It's just it is ridiculous. And then the sun is up later, like you said, and and you're having to logically argue with your child who doesn't want to talk logic about going to bed. And eventually you're just ultimatum, go to bed or else. You know? <laughs> no logic with the toddler, believe me. The whole con that I ran in the wintertime about, hey, but it's night. It's night. It's night. Of course it's bedtime. That, that came back to bite me something fierce in the last couple of weeks. I know. My son has totally gotten back at me. He's like, I don't go to bed when the sun is up, mommy. I go to bed when the sun goes down. And I said, oh, no, you don't. You have to go to bed now. But I think, it, you know, the sun goes down later when you're at higher latitudes, regardless of the daylight savings time. And you'd still be up against some amount of having to con your kids into going to bed before it's dark at some point. That's true, Kiki, but this is a rant. I And we're know. here to express our frustration. And I'm here to tell you, daylight savings is a scam. Okay? It is a scam. I mean, there's some states who opt out of it entirely. It's ridiculous. I'm sick of it. I'm sick and tired. And I'm going to put myself out there right now. I haven't voted yet. This is primary day, but I'm going to tell you, <laughs> I'm going to do a little research. And the first the first indication, the first possibility that I see of a candidate repealing the whole thing. That's your vote. That's going to be my guy right there. I got it. <laughs> Have you ever uh, heard the poem Bed in Summer by Robert Louis Stevenson? No. Tell me. It is this this child's complaint. In winter, I get up at night and dress by yellow candlelight. In summer, quite the other way. I have to go to bed by day. I have to go to bed and see the birds still hopping on the tree or hear the grown-up people's feet still going past me in the street. And does it not seem hard to you when all the sky is clear and blue and I should like so much to play to have to go to bed by day? I can't say anything better than that, Kiki. That wraps it up. <laughs> I think it does. This was a fun show. It was a good show. End of rant. If you have any rant ideas, send them to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast, or you can email us at stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. Dalen, this does conclude episode 64 of the Stem Cell Podcast. So much good information. And Kateri, great interview. Everyone, be sure to tune in for our next episode, where we are going to be talking with Arnold Krigstein about stem cells and Zika virus. I don't want to miss this one. Do you? 
No, it's going to be great. It's going to be really topical. And I think he's going to at once maybe quell a little bit of the hysteria and fear and, and give us something constructive to look toward. Yeah. Really looking forward to it. Hope you are, too. And, of course, we're going to be delivering you the latest papers and our next rant. Dalen, see you in the next episode. All right. Thanks, Kiki. Thanks you to all the uh, listeners as well. And uh, we'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you.